listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to the Integra X-Files, a place where we'll explore and solve for the X factor that will help reshape the future of long-term care pharmacy. Join us to discuss topics and insights that will help you discover ways to grow your pharmacy, stay up to date on important legislative and regulatory issues, learn best practices for operating a profitable pharmacy business, and unlock the mysteries of technology. Hi everyone, this is Frances Nahas, Chief Strategy Officer for Red Cell Technologies, and we are back with the Integra X-Files podcast. I am super thrilled to be here with my co-host today, Ed Vess. Uh, Ed, I'll let you introduce yourself and introduce our esteemed guest, who is a repeat guest, which is really exciting. It's a pleasure to be with you, uh, Francis. I'm Ed Vess, I'm the uh, Director of Pharmacy Professional Affairs for Red Cell Technologies. And as uh, my cohorts like to say, I am still a working pharmacist. So I manage to, to get out in the field uh, at least one weekend a month and either do some consultant work or uh, work in a community and, pharmacy. And rumor has it pharmacist of the year in South Carolina still, yeah? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. So I'll <laughs> brag on you if you won't yeah, brag on okay. yourself. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. uh, joining us today is Chad Wurz, uh, Chief Executive of American Society of Consultant Pharmacists. Chad's a longtime member of ASCP and a former president. Uh, Chad has extensive experience in senior care pharmacy in both consulting and in operations, having served as president of Medication Managers LLC in Cincinnati for more than 10 years prior to being named executive director and CEO of ASCP in 2018. Chad has been very active in all things senior care pharmacy. Uh, he in my opinion, he led our profession in his, in response to COVID. Uh, ASCP was extremely active in communicating to membership uh, during those early days when everything was questionable. So uh, I also brag on Chad because he, he not only uh, did the prep work and the organization, but he immunized quite a few patients uh, with COVID, uh, with the COVID vaccine. So thanks, Chad, for joining us today. Thank you. <laughs> but for those who can't see, because I don't know if we're doing these video yet, do you want to tell everyone what what's behind you? Oh, I've got, uh, I'm, I'm kind of a big Star Wars fan. So I've got a stormtrooper with a um, laser gun aimed at the camera, and I've got um, X-Wing fighters that are Sweeping into battle, I think that scene is from Rogue One, actually. So it's phenomenal, yes. just like the panel pictures behind you, they're fantastic. Yes. The stormtrooper works well when we're dealing with uh, federal agencies, intimidation. A good analogy for, <laughs> right. for politics and policy, maybe <laughs> exactly. Fantastic. So, and why I've got a list of questions, but why don't you kick us off with some of the hot topics uh, from a pharmacy perspective? Well, a whole host of things. Um, I think probably the best thing to do would be maybe start it out with Chad uh, discussing or presenting how important this election is. Uh, I know a lot of us have just gotten frustrated with politics and we just aren't engaged the way that we should be. but professionally, uh, it's critical. And uh, maybe touch on that a little bit, Chad. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, and certainly I, I come from 
uh, a long background in long-term care pharmacy as a, a pharmacist that worked for an independent pharmacy and then one that had um, my own consulting practice and always was a, a, a attentive to things going on in D.C. and um, even local politics, state politics. But um, every election is important. And I, I sound like somebody that moved up here four years ago and drank the, the Kool-Aid out of the swamp. But the reality is, is that you know, our politics is a lot closer to your practice uh, than I think a lot of people think. Um, and there are ways that small organizations like ASCP and individuals that have businesses in different jurisdictions and states can really have a lot of influence over the way the government perceives policy and legislates policy. So um, elections are important. Um, we, as a as a professional society, certainly don't take a, a position on either side of the aisle. We have to deal with all of them uh, at all times. Um, our strategies may differ if there's a Republican or Democrat in the White House, if there's a Republican or Democrat um, House or Senate. Uh, but ultimately, our goals are to promote education opportunities and resources for long-term care pharmacies and pharmacists. So we've got to figure out what resonates which, with each side of the aisle and with individual uh, members themselves to get our points across and push our policy through. I think one of the things we learned during the pandemic, which ultimately, I, I think like like a war, is non nonpartisan. Bi, you know, it's bipartisan. You know, yeah. you, we've got to deal with uh, a virus that's um, wreaking havoc in our country. So you saw a little bit of how the government responds um, in a nonpartisan way to emergencies. And we learned a lot about government during that time. Um, and a lot of our policy issues may have been put on the side burner. So now that we're getting back to that, um, it's, it's time to think about, you know, how important are, are the elections? Who should we, you know, vote for? Um, what do we want to see happen with the different houses of Congress and with the uh, presidential election in 2024? And how does it affect us? Because we've got to deal with it and figure out how to weave weave our policies through so that doesn't matter what happens um, House in the House or the Senate, uh, we can still get our points across. Perfect. So, so we timed this well-ish right? to follow the most recent election, right? So can you give us kind of a rundown of where things came out and how that impacts how you guys are thinking about um, what you're doing and how you engage. Yeah, I Congress think, and... I mean, if you, if we cycle back six months ago, I think what, what we saw happen in these elections is what we thought would happen six months ago. We thought that the Senate was going to be, could swing either way. It was going to be close regardless. And we thought that Republicans would take the house. So we were anticipating essentially what we have today. I think in the run-up to the election, and I think both sides do this, they they start whipping people into a frenzy and coming <laughs> yeah. up with things like red wave and um, stopping the red wave um, and create a little bit more uh, intensity around it than, than really is out there. Um, but I think it ended up kind of the way we thought it would end up. Um, traditionally, 
whoever's not in charge of the White House does better in the midterm election. So yeah. if you have a Republican, I mean, I can't remember the details on how many seats Trump lost in the midterm and how many seats Obama lost in the midterm, right, right. but they always swing the other way. And part of that is sort of the beauty of our system that um, the public kind of likes there to be separation of these powers. They don't like mm -hmm. it when uh, one, one uh, party controls all of the different branches of government. Um, so we kind of got what we expected from from that perspective. It certainly was intense and exciting, I guess, if you're into that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. But, um, and it's still being sort of considered at this point. We don't know what's going to happen with the Senate. Uh, we have one more senatorial race in Georgia right. that needs to be decided. I'm still and, getting, I lived in Georgia for a while. And I'm still getting text messages on a daily basis. That's like, hey, have you voted? I'm like, can't vote there anymore. <laughs> I don't live there anymore. So we got one more, right? We're waiting on. Yeah, and I think what people might not realize is that um, even though it will be a, a Democratic-controlled Senate regardless, um, that 50-50 split that's sort of been the way the Senate has been um, this last session is important to how many committee members are assigned to each committee. If it's 50-50, then the committees are 50-50. If it's 51-49, then the committees swing toward the Democrats. And that has a lot to do with how bills move through committee. They can be voted out of committee if there's a majority. Um, they can be stagnant if there's not a majority. Um, so it does sort of grind the system to a halt if it's 50-50. So that that one singular election still has a lot of um, influence and still important. So the people of Georgia need to get out and vote. Yeah, yeah. One way or the other, right? So right. I, right. because it dictates a little bit just kind of to, to help understand. So when we say committee, it basically means, look, if if there's a bill that folks want to vote on, it's got to first be voted on in a committee. And if it can't be voted on a committee, it means it just never goes to the floor. So the 50-50 split or who controls what doesn't matter. Right? Mm -hmm. It's got to get out of the committee in order to go to the, the vote of the full Senate. Is that a fair representation? That's a fair representation. Okay. And, and pharmacists all over the country can recognize that provider status has been a longstanding <laughs> yeah. goal of ours. And even though there were years where we had I don't know, hundreds of co-sponsors on both sides of the aisle to the bill itself, it never got out of committee. Yeah. And if it doesn't there, get to committee, yeah. it doesn't get to vote. Right. Are there particular committees that matter more for pharmacy? Or uh, Yeah, I mean, there are certainly health committees. Um, um, there is energy and commerce and, and ways and means that are important committees to pharmacists because ultimately... Um, Healthcare is comes down to cost, and some of those okay. some of those committees dictate where the budget dollars go, right? Um, and that affects health. Um, and then there are certain committees, particularly on the Senate, that specifically are around health. Um, and you'll see a lot of um, you know the pharmacists that are in Congress. Um, we have two: one from Tennessee and one from Georgia. They get assigned to you know, the doctor's committee, right? Uh, they get assigned to health topics because that's their perceived um, knowledge base. Um, so they do become more important to, to pharmacists from that perspective. Awesome. So Ed, what are, what are the topics that are top of mind for long-term care pharmacists? Well, uh, pharmacists in general, especially long-term care pharmacists, I think the provider status, um, Chad and I discussed this at, AS, at the ASCP meeting uh, at the end of uh, first of this month or first of November. 
and uh, I mean, Arnie and Jim did a presentation on this and, and it was a great presentation. It is extremely frustrating for me as a pharmacist uh, to have people recognize the value. Uh, I think most people that apply logic understand how we can improve patient care and reduce overall health care cost, but yet we can't get a vote on this. And that 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 one just it drives me crazy. Well, you're you're yeah. trying to mix, you know, logic and politics. And budget, right? Yeah. And budget. Um, I, I think I remember graduating, I graduated in the late 90s. I, I'm a old school pharmacist, so I have a BS in pharmacy from Cincinnati in 96 and then uh, a two-year PharmD degree in 98. And we talked. We were talking about then. We were talking about yeah. provider status. That was a big deal. We were going to yeah. come out. We were going to push and get provider status. Well, that was 24 years ago. Um, we've gone through this process. Uh, it's moved. Um, we do have a bill that gets introduced every Congress on provider status. If you followed it closely, you know, at the beginning, it was a broad pharmacist can bill for their clinical services. And it had a very hefty price tag on it because the way the Congressional Budget Office looks at these kinds of things, they they price them as if every pharmacist provide every possible service out in the marketplace. So they have these giant price tags and they never, they're not dynamic. So they don't take into account the potential savings of those services. So there's always a budgetary argument about, well, we can't afford, you know, at the time, I think the original uh, bill, I don't know what the original bill was, but the first slimmed down version was, okay, well, instead of doing it for everybody, we'll do it only for underserved and rural communities. That price tag was $9 billion. Pre-COVID, $9 billion was a lot of money. Um, since COVID and trillion dollar you know, right. bills come out, you're like, well, what, well maybe, maybe it's not that much money anymore. <laughs> uh, but it still ends up being the thing that that holds back that particular piece of legislation. But if you've watched what pharmacy has really, two things, what they've tried to do um, since the pandemic and, and even a little bit before the pandemic and after the pandemic is really weave this story around how pharmacists performed during the pandemic, the flexibilities that were granted to make sure people could get vaccines, to make sure they could get therapeutics. I mean, we've had pharmacists now that can that can prescribe Paxlovid. I mean, that's mm -hmm. a big deal. Um, right. Pharmacists can order, administer uh, vaccines. Uh, that's a big deal. Um, those kinds of responsibilities are responsibilities that pharmacy needs to take advantage of, certainly, that, and they have during the, the emergency period, but fight to keep going forward because it's provider status I don't know is ever going to come the way that original bill came out where pharmacists can go out and bill for their services. Um, it's going to come like death by a thousand cuts. Right, it's yeah, going right. to be okay, you can do vaccines. Okay, you can do like Tamiflu and Paxlovid as therapies for infectious disease. And we start pushing forward and getting our foot in the door of being a bona fide provider under the Medicare Act, or Social Security Act in Medicare, and then being able to add on services downstream as we yeah. demonstrate their importance. And if we've got folks, sorry, sorry, I cut you off. If we've got folks who aren't living and breathing this every day, why is that provider status so important? What does that mean under Medicare 
for these pharmacists. Ultimately, it means that you can independently create a bill and bill the Medicare Medicare Part B for your right. service. Okay. And if Medicare is paying pretty much every other health plan, we'll probably follow. Well, we, what's the... traditionally happened, and <laughs> even though you're seeing a little bit in the state Medicaid departments, mm-hmm. sort of a reverse of this, that yeah. um, I know in Ohio and um, California have provider status language, they're starting to create paths for pharmacists to bill for clinical services to the Medicaid program. Okay. But we do know that if Medicare does it, that the commercial insurers follow suit in general. Pretty um, and you can see that with the pandemic. The federal government sort of set the administration fee for the vaccine, and the commercial insurers came in and, for the most part, supported the way Medicare was reimbursing. Um, so they do look at Medicare as sort of the lead payer in um, how to pay for provider services. Okay. Ed, I cut you off. Yeah, no, I, we, were going, we were going down the same path. Uh, and, you know, Chad mentioned that some of the states, South Carolina, our Medicaid program, uh, the, at our state convention meeting uh, back in June, announced that they were working on provider status for pharmacists. Yep. Because, you know, on the state level, um, they do, or they are able to look at the cost savings in addition to the expense. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we keep one diabetic patient out of the emergency room where, you know, especially in medically underserved area, uh, they end up in the emergency room because they don't take their meds properly. They're, they're not dosed properly. They're not following the physician. So yeah, it it is frustrating for me because, you know, I, I don't look at it politically. I look at it from a patient care and I I realize what the pharmacist can do and you know the provider status deal I can get it until I look at some of the other healthcare professionals that have provider status and I'm sitting there thinking how on earth can they have provider status when the pharmacist is I mean we're grossly overtrained for what we're allowed to do. Yeah. You mean like, you mean like acupuncture? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, it, it, it's uh, it, it's baffling to me. But as Francis says, you know, logic and politics don't don't mix. Well, I mean, it's it's sort of the um, the double edged sword. Like, um, and I, and I don't mean to pick on acupuncture. I've actually had it done before, and it and it, it worked for me. But I think the the way that it intersects healthcare is in cost. Mm-hmm. You know, there's 330,000 pharmacists. There are more pharmacists than there are primary care physicians right now. So unfortunately, that means we can say things like everybody's within five miles of a pharmacy right. and right. access is great. And if we're able to provide services, everybody can get them. And then the government might look at that and say, well, that's great but then everybody can get them and we'll have right. to pay for them. Um, yeah. So it's you've got to walk that tightrope of when it really matters and when it really creates value from a healthcare perspective. And Ed, like you, I, you know, I think pharmacists are so much more capable of doing things that, that positively influence quality of life and, and patient care. But we've got to kind of, again, weave that, weave that, into how it works in a in a budget and how we don't bankrupt the system, you know, if we let pharmacists bill for services. Um, And that's frustrating because we do know how beneficial they are. And I think, you know, however you look at the pandemic, the silver lining is pharmacists stepped up, 
uh, oftentimes uh, benevolently, like they didn't get paid what they should have got paid. You know, they fight um, some insurers about getting paid for some of the services they provided when it was an emergency. And the answer was, well, we'll just do it and figure it out later. Mm -hmm. um, but because of that, we do have a lot of chips on the table. We do yeah. have this ECAPS bill, which is basically test, treat, vaccinate, which has provider status embedded in it. Um, it would be limited to test, treat, vaccinate, but it would be the crack of the door. We would yeah. be listed as a provider and we could come back and say, well, hey, thanks for that. We're doing a great job with vaccines and test and treat. What about what we're doing for diabetics? What about yep. what we're doing for cardiovascular yeah. patients? Yeah. Um, and that's where we really see the opportunity, at least in this sh short lame duck period, is to push that particular bill across the finish line. Whether it ha happens or not, you know, is you know, yeah. is is unclear yet. So tell us a little about sort of what's in that bill, what's it cover, where's it sit, who's for it, who's against it, like what's going so on. So we, we had a, you know, I think what's important, um, and I think what started at the very beginning of the pandemic is we got all of the pharmacy associations together on a call that that happened twice a week, and we talked about, you know, what. What are we? What's happening, and what are we going to do? How are we going to? How are we going to help the healthcare system manage and help people manage this pandemic? And that's allowed a lot of us to um, work together closer on a lot of these issues as they've sort of evolved through the pandemic. So where it stands right now is we got a lot of support for this, similar to the, what we get with provider status, um, but. Just like any other issue, you know, the Congress sees something shiny on the ground and is like, oh, I'm distracted. I'm going to look over there. Um, and they forget that we just endured this, you know, cataclysmic 100 year pandemic. Um, and now that it sort of feels like it's over, they're like, well, I mean, we don't have to do anything about it now. It's over. Right. And they've lost sight of the fact that a lot of these services that were authorized and a lot of what pharmacy did during the pandemic if it were in play before the pandemic, it would have blunted the impact of that pandemic. Mm -hmm. So we really have to sell right now the idea that this prepares us for the next one, whatever right. that is. If you could, if whatever you want to call it, uh, dog virus starts to <laughs> break out and we have to go to a location for a test and there's some initial treatment that we could get um, or there's a vaccine that we can get. Right. That's where those 330,000 pharmacists and all those access points become really important because the faster you get those services to people, the faster you can hold down how much that particular virus and, spreads. So we got to make that sale. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I see it and hear it when I talk to just friends of mine who don't work in healthcare. Right. It's very normal now that they're like, oh, I'm going to I got to go to my pharmacy to get whatever vaccine, which, right. you know, we know a portion did before for the flu vaccine. But most folks expected I go to my doctor's office and I'm going to sure. get vaccines for whatever. And so that language has changed even in just the normal public. And it's how do you make sure the regulation follows the behavior so we don't lose the behavior? <laughs> Right. And, and folks, if you right. look at long-term care, it's even more profound because yeah. long-term care pharmacies didn't do this before. You know, we weren't we weren't vaccinating. Um, mm -hmm. We were getting the vaccine in a lot of cases and shipping it to the nursing home and they were taking care of the vaccination process. Yeah. They weren't very good at it. I think we were a little complacent about that. And again, I don't mean to pick on people, but um, they weren't very good at billing it. They weren't very good at 
researching the history of the patient and making sure that they got their correct vaccines when we're talking about pneumococcal and flu. Um, and at the beginning of the pandemic, when the vaccine became available, they came to us and said, will you do it? Because we can't. Yeah. And that's, again, something that happens that I, I still look back at that as one of the most pivotal, important things that happened during the pandemic for pharmacy, because somebody handed us a responsibility and said, will you do older adult vaccines for us? Because we 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 have staffing issues. We really don't know how to bill it. Um, we can't do it. It's too much right now. All the things that we're dealing with in the pandemic. We need to not only accept that, but be thrilled that we have the opportunity to be responsible for older adult vaccines in nursing homes and assisted living and dive into it. Um, a lot of people kind of, I don't know if they argue with me about it, but they're not as quite as um, enthusiastic as I am about it. But when you look at the future of value-based care and providing assessments and getting paid for services that aren't related specifically to the product, vaccine's one of those places. You get an administration fee. It's possible downstream that there could be a value-based service. If you're at 90% of your resident population, you might get a value-based incentive payment. Um, and it's something that pharmacy can integrate into their process and at least not lose money on. They can make some money on these processes. If you're doing flu, pneumococcal, um, uh, COVID, there's an opportunity to make make that system work. You know, you're not going to get rich on that process, but it may be a revenue line that is least supportive of itself. So, Chad, along that, we've got the 1135 waiver in place right now where pharmacies can bill for those vaccines that you just mentioned in the skilled nursing environment, which we couldn't yep. do before. Yep. The facility did the billing and was responsible for the administration. I'm, you know, I'm hoping that that is something that can be made permanent because I see great opportunity there. And as I look at what's happening across the nation with, you mentioned nursing, uh, staffing within nursing home in South Carolina, we're getting ready to allow certified med techs administer uh, medications, oral, topical, and sub, uh, routine subcutaneous injections, so insulin. IM will be ex exempted. So I see this as an opportunity for that consultant pharmacist. Uh, to be able to uh, bring some additional value to the facility as well as help financially at the pharmacy side. Absolutely. And I think, you know, again, my background in long-term care pharmacy, I had some operational, um, certainly spent a lot of time as a consultant. You know, if you would have told me that if I coordinated with the pharmacy. And every time I walked into the building, there might be four or five people that I had to provide a vaccine to, and I might get, you know, 10 or $15 of vaccine for it. I certainly would have done it. It would have been yeah. additional revenue for me. Yeah. You know, it's a coordination between the pharmacy and the consultant pharmacist. Yeah. Um, I would have felt like that's a, a clinical service I'm providing. This is not, you know, traditional. Um, and I think we need to think that way. Um, we, it doesn't have to be done that way, but I think that if the flexibility exists to do it that way, I think you'll see a lot more pharmacies and pharmacists get involved yep. and try to be try to build a better mousetrap as it relates to older adult vaccines. That that bill 
is called the Equitable Community Access to Pharmacist Services Act. It's House Bill 7213. Um, and to get back to um, Francis' question, um, where it sits right now is at this point, it's not about getting people to sign on and sponsor it. It's about hanging it on a Christmas tree somewhere. <laughs> so but that's a that's a term I've learned since being in yeah. DC is that in the lame duck session, if you have a bill that has the potential to move, you find a vehicle like a um, uh, a budget act, you hang it on that particular it's pork, basically, right? You hang right. it on that bill. And if that bill passes, your your issue passes. So right now we're working at trying to make sure that there's a vehicle. And if there is a vehicle, getting it on that on that vehicle. Yeah. Now the yes. elections hurt us a little bit because the 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 Republicans know they're going to be in charge of the House. They're not going to do too many things that are permanent during this lame duck session, like yeah. change the budget limit um, um, and things like that. So uh, we do think there's some health care type bills that will move. And we're trying to figure out where we can put this uh, as a profession to get it to get it through. It seems like to me that uh, letting this ability expire would be a political nightmare to the politicians who did not support it. Yeah, I do think as it relates to that particular waiver, that there's a lot more um, agency support for not doing it through legislation, but you know, changing the rule. Yeah. Um, CMS has the, we think has the authority to make that waiver permanent. It seems like the White House and the agencies agree. So we'll see what happens. Um, now, just to give everybody some background, that waiver will exist one year post the declaration that the emergency period is is finished. And that emergency period is not over. They have to give 60 days to announce that the emergency period is going to be over. So we have a rolling one year and 60 days of this particular waiver. Um, but you know, we need to make it permanent as fast as possible so that even if they do declare it over and that year expires, um, it's not gone at the end of that period. And that also applies to maybe a lesser known waiver, which was the waiver where a pharmacist could uh, have a relationship with a physician, collaborative relationship, and bill incident to that physician. And when you bill incident two, there's some codes that you can use. Um, there are a lot of rules about billing through the physician, one of which is used to be before the emergency period, the physician had to be immediately accessible, said so of direct supervision, meaning they're in the nursing home when you're in the nursing home, and they can't bill or you can't bill on the same patient on the same day. During in the emergency, they waived direct supervision to general, which meant that the physician does not need to be in the building on the day that you provide your service. They still can't bill, I think, the same patient on the same day, but you can bill um, as long as that physician's not billing. Why that's important is if you think about working in a nursing home, you're really not there when the physician's there um, right. unless you coordinate that. So you can provide clinical services to your patients, bill incident two through that physician in the current emergency environment. So that's another waiver that if the emergency period goes away, it goes back to direct supervision and we lose that ability. But some pharmacists have built practices at this point, billing their clinical services incident to the physician. Um, so we're trying to also work on that particular 
uh, waiver and make that permanent as well because of of what pharmacists have have stepped up and done during the pandemic. Interesting. So, so what other are there any other kind of big um, key bills that are topical to long term care pharmacies that that y'all are working on? Oh, I think the other one that's big is the um, long-term care pharmacy definition bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's another one that we're trying to figure out where to hang it on yeah. a Christmas tree. Yeah. Um, and I think if you, th- if just intuitively, if you think about the challenges that we had at the outset of this pandemic, um, we couldn't identify medical directors. We couldn't identify pharmacies that service nursing facilities. We couldn't even identify the difference between long-term care pharmacies and community pharmacies. And that, you know, we fought really hard to make sure long-term care pharmacy was recognized and really that the whole long-term care industry was recognized at the beginning of the pandemic. Otherwise, it would have been overlooked. Um, And there wouldn't have been this emphasis on what ended up being the most vulnerable population and their access to pharmacy and care. So the long-term care pharmacy definition would just make it easier for regulators and people working in the federal government to include or disclude a, a subset of pharmacy based on the issue that's coming out. So there's a there's a very specific, um, well, like um, medication-assisted therapy is a good example. Um, to get methadone for non-pain, for, for addiction services, the, the individual has to go every day to a clinic and be dosed their methadone. In a nursing home, because there's no federal definition of long-term care pharmacy, that's still the rule. So imagine okay. an Jeez. addict in a nursing yeah. home that now has to be shuttled in, to yeah. the clinic every day doesn't work. So yeah. individuals like that don't end up in nursing homes, or if they do, they're, they're, there's a huge burden on them. Um, so that's just an example. But just in general, if I can tell you from our perspective at ASCP, if I could have gone to a government agency and said, give me the list of all the long-term care pharmacies so that I can make sure I get them information and make sure they're included in distribution of products. Um, and they're in the loop on this. It would have been far easier than throwing the bat signal out, trying to <laughs> gather them all in and then making that connection with federal government. So um, that's another bill that we're working on and we hope has some resolution. Yeah. So it's the, the um, listening and thinking through sort of process, right? It's the contradiction of um, in order for something to get done, it has to be hung on something big and also nothing big ever gets done in Washington, right? It's it's this like, well, it's got to be a big bill, but nothing, yeah, maybe extreme is the bill. better word, right? Like you've got to just chip away at the topic. You're never going to pass like the ideal long-term perfect vision first go round. Right. You right. got to chip away at it. You got to chip away, and you need you need some champions on the on the hill that are going to carry it for you. So yeah. you know we need somebody to, you know, doesn't really matter if they're a um, congressman that's that's retiring or lost their seat. Sometimes sometimes a congressperson that's lost their seat is saying, "Hey, this is my parting gift." Right. Let me. Yeah. But you need them to be the champion of that particular issue, whichever one it is. So um, we need some champions. And the way we get champions is if individual pharmacists and pharmacies talk about these issues to their legislators and make it an issue for them. So if you have a big yeah. pharmacy in a district and you employ a lot of people um, or you generate a lot of tax base, I mean, you're important. You're, you're, you're ultimately important 
even if you're just an individual pharmacist. But if you have additional reasons to be important, that's influence that helps a candidate think, oh, this is a, a, an issue I definitely need to champion. So those kinds of grassroots efforts are always important. Okay. And I would say, I always go back to, um, if you've not worked in healthcare, it's hard to understand how complex healthcare is and meaningful. Sometimes it really helps to see it, right? And doing those kind of, have them come toward your pharmacy. Absolutely. Absolutely. See what the challenges are. Before COVID, especially during the beginning. Yeah of agencies talking to us, I would have said that 0% of people in government understand nursing homes and long-term yeah. care pharmacies. And now after two and a half years of just talking and talking and reiterating and repeating, I think maybe 10% understand right. what it is. <laughs> and and that 10% is like fading right. um, because that's the nature of, of the beast, unfortunately, is they... Hmm. And, they, they, and probably five percent of them, it's just because they know so they have a family member that's in a long-term right. care facility, and they've got some perspective on, I mean, on I what remember, it's like. Right. I remember lobbying for Part D back in two thousand and six, and having the same conversations. Everybody was yeah. like, "What do you mean that older people don't just walk to the corner drugstore and get their drugs?" <laughs> no, no. There's a whole industry over here that is, yeah, you know, specific to assisted living and to skilled nursing, and they have their own. Uh, specialized pharmacies that service them. So it's improving, but it took a pandemic. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's not legislative, but one of the, well, I guess it is. It's legislation that you're working on. You've got a group now that are working and ASCP is part of it. This medical at home initiative. I think that's awesome. I think that is absolutely awesome. Unfortunately, it's another one of those things where they're not going to look at the cost savings as, as they think about it, which there's a tremendous cost savings there. But I, I'm pumped over this one. I think it's great. I mean, I think there's some good things. And, and you're talking about our long-term care at home coalition. Yes. And, you know, from a from a 50,000 foot view, just thinking of the, the the number of people over the age of 65 right now, we have 57 million people over the age of 65 today. In seven years, we're going to have 74 million we have not, and everybody out there that works in long-term care can attest to this. We we don't license new nursing facility beds. <laughs> we have the same number. They may move around as a nursing home goes out of business. Somebody collects their beds and makes their nursing home bigger or builds a new one, but we don't allocate new ones. We have the same 1.7 million you know, parking places that we've had for the last 25 years. There's no incentive to allocate new licenses because they're super expensive and the public's uh, opinion of long, of nursing homes is not very good. Nobody, mm-hmm. you know, desires to end up in a nursing home. So we know that we're going to have a large population of people that maybe people we admit to nursing homes today that aren't going to have that opportunity in seven years. That they're going to have to be cared for in assisted living, or they're going to have to be cared for in their home. Um, and what will be left to um, skilled nursing facilities are very advanced comorbid individuals, transitional individuals, individuals like we we've seen today and evolved today. Um, and we're going to see people with advanced dementia and psychosis. So there's going to be um, very important healthcare work done in those nursing homes. It's just going to be more advanced and different. And mm-hmm. people are going to age in place longer and, and more frequently in assisted living and in 
in their homes, but they're going to need the kinds of services that have always been applied to people in nursing homes. So compliance packaging, a pharmacist that looks at their medications on a monthly basis and communicates with their medical team. There's going to be need for 24-7 access and emergency services to people living in their homes, uh, some of which will involve some level of innovation by pharmacists, but We've done that since 1969. Yeah, you know we've in innovated. How do we deliver pharmacy services better? Um, we're going to have to deal with compliance and adherence in a different way. You know, in a nursing home, you can arguably assume that the patient's getting their meds because a nurse is passing them. In right. your home, you don't, you can't make that assumption. So, how do we adjust for that, or how do we see that that they're taking their meds um, appropriately? Um, but that whole environment is a, not only an opportunity for long-term care pharmacies, but it's an opportunity for healthcare in general. How do we do it? Um, how do we create a path for a patient to be eligible for it? Because again, it's that numbers game. We don't want to let all 74 million people be eligible for it, but maybe that 2 million that needed nursing home services seven years ago, they do need it. So how do we how do we make them eligible? Uh, and then if they are eligible, how do we make sure that the services being provided are are met? Um, so we're working on a coalition that's that's defining what we think based on other government regulation an eligible patient is and what we think the necessary services are. And then you construct um, reimbursement mechanisms around that. And you find a pretty Christmas tree to hang that. And then you write it and you put it on the Christmas tree. <laughs> right. Or, I mean, like, there's no reason that, again, there's no reason that pressure on agencies can't resolve some of these issues. But right. the threat of legislation is always the one that gets them moving. If right. they think they're going to get a, a bad bill that is far too generous to pharmacies, then they're going to figure out a way to do it before the bad bill makes it to, to pass. So that's kind of the the back and forth between Congress and the federal agencies. Got it. And the, and the tightrope that you, yeah, that you walk as you work with both right. of them. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, one thing we always do at the end of our podcast is sort of ask what's the X factor. What's the one thing um, our listeners should walk away and kind of either do differently or think about, or kind of might change the way they practice. So I, mean, I would say I would say I'm gonna I'm gonna be more aggressive on this X factor maybe okay. than I was last time, but like we have to be open to what's what people are laying in front of us. So right now that's vaccinations. Like they are handing those to us. We have to instead of being like I want to go back to the old way where I just ship you the carton of vaccines and you take care of it, nursing home. We have to be open to wait. Maybe we can do this. Maybe we can build a procedure for this. Maybe we can generate some revenue for this. Maybe we can build a case for value-based care uh, initiatives out of this. Um, so I think that's the X factor. I I know there are pharmacies out there doing it that have embraced it. Um, now that it's a function of elevating what they're doing, putting it in front of other pharmacies so they can see what they're doing, so that they can take that step into that um, environment, and then also showing agencies and legislators what's being done to codify and make permanent some of the flexibilities that were granted during the pandemic. So I think that's the X factor. I got to toss mine in too. Go um, for it, Ed. It's two things, and really, this is just. The 35,000 foot view of what Chad just said, join your organization. Every pharmacist should be a member of their state pharmacy association, 
and the national organization that best represents your practice. I'm I'm the luckiest pharmacist in the world because part of my job I get to be members of all those organizations. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and every time I go to a meeting, I, yeah, I walk away thinking, you know, these poor people that aren't paying attention, you know, they're they're not keeping up and being active, being engaged, being supportive of your national organization ASCP and your state organization or your state pharmacy association. Uh, which re represents everything there at the state level. And remember, the practice of pharmacy is governed by the state, yep. with the exception of the DEA. And, you know, the DEA, Chad, maybe that's a separate I know. X Files <laughs> podcast. <laughs> because this next X -Files. Time three, right? We'll do it again and we'll talk DEA. <laughs> yeah. And I'll pick, I'll throw one in this time too, which I think I've picked on a couple times on this podcast, which is, hey, go know your rep, know your rep. Yeah and invite them to your pharmacy, right? It's it's the only way we're going to get the 10% to 11% or maybe 12% exactly right. who actually understand why it matters. Absolutely. Yeah. Those are Fantastic. all factors. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> we'll walk away from this one with a lot. <laughs> well, this was fabulous. It's always a pleasure to have you on, Chad. Yeah, um, thank you for the opportunity. I love, I love doing these. Awesome. These are great. Fantastic. And have a good week. We'll see you guys later. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Integra X-Files. We'd like to hear from you and gain your perspective on the X-Factor and improving long-term care pharmacy. Connect with us at IntegraXFiles.com. That's IntegraXFiles.com.